sub-communities while giving stature and recognition to the membership. That is part of how communities can scale and grow. How does Weight Watchers as a community, CrossFit as a community scale? Well, there's a local CrossFit gym. You feel like you're part of the big CrossFit thing, but you got your people at your local gym. Robbie told me once that she's still a member of Weight Watchers. Why is that? Even after she's lost all the weight that she wanted to lose, because they make you a member for life. You come back and speak to the current membership about your weight loss journey, and then eventually you become an ambassador. I'm the paper lamb. I don't do fluff. I don't do filler. Don't do emojis. What I do is study winners in B2B SaaS because I want to know how much is strategy, how much is luck, and how do they win? This week, Sam Jacobs, founder and CEO of Pavilion, a community-powered learning platform for CEOs, go-to-market leaders, and their teams. In this interview, Sam shares key insights into how he built Pavilion's community from the ground up to over 15 million in revenue, what happened after he raised venture capital, and lessons learned around staying focused on your core customers versus expanding too quickly. Let's get into it. I was a CRO in New York, and I needed a community for myself because I kept getting fired and I was having trouble with my bosses and figuring out how to do the job was incredibly complicated, more complicated than I anticipated. So I formed the community as a mechanism for peer support from my friends. It was not intended to be a business. Mm. It was free. And we called it the New York Revenue Collective and people started hearing about it. We were very explicit about who could join and who couldn't join. And we said no service providers, no investors, no CEOs, only operating executives. And you had to have a VP title or above. And that created a lot of FOMO. People wanted to join because there were specific rules about who couldn't join. I turned it into a business because I needed to make some money. I figured being a CRO wasn't a long-term stable career trajectory. It wasn't some strategic calculation. I didn't go to business school and have a hack day where I thought it up. It was more, I'm going to do this thing because I need it. People started reaching out and it took on a life of its own. In retrospect, there were a couple lessons that I did intuitively that enabled our growth. Such as? The multi-level marketing component, which is effectively, we created these chapters I was generous sharing the revenue from the chapters with the chapter heads and with their teams. We did very aggressive rev shares, particularly for the earliest chapters. What that meant was that I had a field sales organization that was completely commission-based and completely incentivized to drive our growth. I went out and recruited senior revenue leaders from all of the major cities around the world where I would combine a senior person with an up-and-coming person that would do the work, the senior person could be more of a figurehead. And that worked really well. It, it also provided a sense of local community so that you could take the values of Pavilion writ large on a global basis, then apply them on a local level and people feel like they had their local Pavilion and then they had the bigger global community when they needed it. That was one thing. And then there was a growth hack, uh, which is we encourage people to put the fact that they were members on their LinkedIn bio Pretty soon it started showing up everywhere and then everybody had to join because it became a badge of honor and you had to have it on your LinkedIn profile. So that was another wise decision. We were an in-person events business for most of our existence. And then COVID came along and we pivoted to doing 60 digital events a week because again, it was crowdsourced. We would have local members organize their own virtual meetups and virtual get-togethers. And it became incredibly vibrant online community Everybody thinks of us as a Slack community. We started off on email as a listserv. We weren't on Slack until many years into our existence, but we took advantage of Slack and it became 
a powerful accelerant to our growth. The growth lasted through last year. We grew this year, but not nearly as much. Let's go back to the early days. How long did it take you to get to the first million in revenue? And what was the hardest part about it? It took about 10 months, 11 months. I did it in a specific way. I had a job while I started it, so I never needed it to be anything. Then when I started working on it full time, again, I didn't need it to be anything. At the beginning, I, I didn't raise money for it, so I didn't have any specific growth target. I talked to all these founders. I'm talking to so many people that say, we have to hit Q4 so that we can raise in Q1. I never thought about it like that. It was really just as long as people were having a great experience, as long as our values were embedded in the organization, that was what was compelling and interesting. It was completely non-technical. It was a hacked together series of zaps, largely connected by HubSpot. It was me and my head of operations at the time, who's now my head of people, so HR slash people department. And we were building basically cheap automations and really just encouraging and cultivating the community. And the other thing to be aware of is that this is fundamentally a business built on LinkedIn. We are a mm -hmm. skim or subset of the overall LinkedIn community in the sense that all of our marketing happens on LinkedIn. All of it was organic. We never paid for anything. We were talking about things that you couldn't Google, talking about comp. We were talking about how to negotiate. In fact, negotiation is still a critical part of what we advise and recommend for our members. We have a point of view. We were an advocate. I think that's the other thing that I would underscore is that there was a point of view embedded within Revenue Collective, now Pavilion. The point of view is bringing executives were getting screwed over in high growth startups and that somebody needed to speak up for them. Not totally dissimilar from a union or a guild. And that's why at the beginning, we didn't let in CEOs. Now I think our vision and aspiration is big enough. But candidly, I also think I'm a CEO and I needed a peer community and I didn't feel like subscribing to somebody else's. So we started one, but I still fundamentally think we're an advocate for the solopreneur, the fractional consultant, the person that has domain expertise and go to market and is figuring out how they assemble a career that monetizes that expertise in the right way. So you got to 1 million in revenue and then you bootstrapped all the way to 10 million. During that one to 10 phase, did you get better at some things? What changed? It's always hard to scale community because it becomes less intimate, less exclusive, especially if you're selling an exclusive club. They sense it when you are uh, attempting to grow. So that was one thing that changed. And then we had to become more focused on the value proposition and what exactly you get. Because the problem with community is that it's ill-defined and somewhat amorphous. So everybody can have a different expectation around what I'm supposed to experience. That was the fundamental instinct behind education and curriculum and content, which is that it gave a structured way with a tangible outcome because everybody knows what it means to take a course. Not everybody knows what it means to join a club or what they're supposed to feel or get out of joining the club. Whereas everybody knows that when you take a class, you get a certificate at the end and hopefully you can point to it as a body of knowledge that you've accumulated because you have this artifact. I would bet our programming is significantly better than a traditional secondary post-grad uh, education, at least online, from someplace like Harton or, or, or Harvard or Wharton, because we're taught by current practitioners. All of the people that are teaching our content are currently doing their jobs and taking some time to teach. These are the lessons, these are the skills, these are the tactics I'm using today. The big thing that changed was the lack of intimacy and then me constantly thinking about what is the best mechanism to scale this business in a way that preserves the value.
So you have membership. There are in-person conferences where people can buy tickets to and sponsors and education. So how do these pieces all go together? I, th I think of it uh, as a flywheel, I guess. That word is overused. But the way that they go together is that the mechanism through which you accumulate the insights, the skills, and the network that you need to manage your career as a go-to-market executive. I don't think it was a mistake to invest in Pavilion University and this series of online learning because it distills uh, the skills that you need into tangible curriculum, as I mentioned. One part is content. People understand what it means to take a course. People understand what it means to accumulate skills. If they want it, they can buy it. And they're, and they're getting what they signed up for because it does what it says on the tin, as the Brits would say. So you come for content. The community produces the insights, and we figure out a way to package the insights. And from there, we try to expose you to the community itself through something like Slack or some kind of platform where you can connect with each other, where you can message each other, and where you can get answers to questions in real time at all times of the day and night. And then all of that is catalyzed through in-person experiences. When you think about the future of software and where all of these companies are going, it does feel like software companies are in more jeopardy than we are, even if we're not venture scale, so to speak. Community and in-person event experiences are the one thing that AI at least to date, unless we're wearing goggles, cannot replace. We all feel disassociated because of automation, because of offshore workforces, because we feel like, what is the value that we add? It is a place that you cannot easily replicate online. So all of those things feed each other because the content that we program through uh, the curriculum we design is also available through online learning. It's the community coming together and all of these things working in concert. So that's what I think mm -hmm. of as the key pillars of where we need to invest, community, events, and, and education. E-learning is a high-churn industry. I know this because I've been in the space for seven-plus years. High-churn is universal across sectors, whether it's marketing training or learning how to code. Course completion rates are low. Learning, for most people, is a nice-to-have. Most people get busy with work or life and stop using the learning products and churn. College graduation rates are six times higher than e-learning, which has abysmal completion rates. It has a lot to do with accountability. At school, people expect something from you, parents, professors, peers, but nobody cares if you finish an online course. Every e-learning business realizes this eventually, and so they add on other stuff. In Pavilion's case, come for content, stay for the community and actual relationships. The community play is actually very hard to pull off. Pavilion is showing the rest of us how it should be done. You raised uh, $25 million. How did that change the business? What was the impact? I remember meeting with another advisor who was on a board of mine many years ago. And he said, that valuation is flush, meaning that he felt like, you know, they were paying, if not a premium, they were, you know, there, there wasn't like dramatic upside. They didn't get a great deal. I think they'll get a good deal over the course of the years, but I tend to agree that, let's be honest, we were the beneficiary of a very hot financing environment during COVID and the fact that there were low interest rates. I don't think that deal would get done today, to be completely honest. What changed was that I'd always run it for profitability and every dollar that we spent had to come from revenue in some way. And all of a sudden we had money that didn't come from there. There was tons of money available. We're not a tech business. We use tech but we are not a tech business, but everything was being valued like a tech business. And everybody was thinking that they were the next Mark Zuckerberg, they were the next Elon Musk. And so everybody was saying, 
in an era of free money, the, the logical thing to do is to spend it quickly to gobble up market share and to do all the things because we don't want to be in last place when the dust settles or the music stops playing and we've seeded all of these markets or opportunities to other players. That thinking was the fundamental mistake I made. I went from monitoring our cash flow very closely to taking my eye off the ball and making a series of large investments that I think were not appropriately sized, meaning like it's not whether you do learning or not, it's how much should you invest in learning. It's not whether or not you should do B2B sales and have corporate memberships. It's how big should that sales team be? And how much do you invest if those memberships are going to renew those corporate memberships? And should you build your own software? I was under the impression for a long time that we should build our own software. It was only recently that I decided we should not build our own software. And also people say, why'd you change the name? Because Revenue Collective, everybody loved. The answer was I wanted to do HR Pavilion and I wanted to do Finance Pavilion. And I felt like the Pavilion naming convention lent itself easily to new verticals. So I had all of these adjacent communities that I was friends with that I intended to compete with. We went to being the premier executive go-to-market community to being a thing that was trying to train individual contributors with live courses and competing with Sales Assembly and Sales Impact Academy. We went to trying to compete with Operators Guild on the finance and operations side. We wanted to compete with Reforge on the product side. We wanted to be cradle to grave, training and enablement for every professional everywhere. But it was too diffuse and it took us away from the core thing that made us great, which is our members and being credible with our members and having a point of view with our members. And it created a litany of mistakes. But the thing I want to underscore is it wasn't somebody else pushing me to do this. I started talking about valuation more than I've ever talked about valuation. When you're bootstrapping, you're aware that you're creating some level of enterprise value, but mostly you're like, hey, we're profitable. This is great. I can keep doing this forever. Then all of a sudden I kept thinking about exits and all this other crap after we raised the money. One of the biggest things that we did right at the beginning was that we created these chapters and we shared the money with them liberally. And growth was slowing and NPS was declining a little bit from the high of like 50. And it was slowly declining. I went on this road show in the spring of 22 and met some of the chapter heads in some of the cities. And I said, I, I don't respect these people. They, they are not the right representations of our brand. And instead of just getting new chapter heads, I got rid of the whole chapter head structure completely. And we redesigned this new structure that was intended to drive more efficiency and profitability. And effectively, we ripped the soul out of the entire community. And it was the biggest mistake. The two biggest mistakes I've made are getting rid of chapters instead of just like renegotiating certain chapter heads were making $35,000 a month. And this was a side job for them. But instead of just renegotiating with those people, I got rid of the whole structure to try and do more top-down management. Then I tried to build my own software for a long time and then finally just capitulated saying, I'm not going to build a better Slack than Slack. I'm not going to build a better community management platform. Why don't I borrow their team of 100 engineers instead of my team of eight engineers? And I can focus on what I'm good at, which is content, events, and nurturing and managing yeah. community. While new CEOs focus on customer acquisition, experienced leaders understand that retention plays an outsized role in bottom line growth. Here's Patrick Campbell, founder of ProfitWell, talking about the data behind that at MicroConf. We built out a little bit of model with a, about 500 companies, 500 SaaS companies in particular. 
We wanted to answer the question that if we improve each of those main pillars of growth, acquisition, monetization, and retention, by the same amount or the same relative amount, what would the respective impact be on the bottom line? And what was interesting is if you improve your acquisition by 1%, so meaning if you improve the number of leads that you have or you improve the efficiency of your conversion, you're gonna see about a 3% boost in your bottom line. Now if you improve your retention by 1%, how long those folks stick around essentially, you're gonna improve your bottom line by just under 7%. And as to not contradict myself, of course, um, if you prove your monetization by about 1%, raise your price, figure out your packaging, decrease your value metric in the right way, you're gonna see about a 13% boost in your bottom line. Now what's fascinating about this isn't the necessarily the absolute numbers here, but it's the relative impact that you're seeing in the differences of these approaches. And really the fact that focusing on your monetization and your retention, especially if you're a self-funded company, has two to four X the impact of focusing in on your acquisition. Communities, everybody and their mother has tried to build one. Some have succeeded and there's free and there's paid. I had an extremely successful Facebook community Highly engaged, meeting up at conferences, the whole thing. I think once we crossed 15,000 people, it was like we let in every rando that wanted to join and the quality went to shit and then the sense of community disappeared. Now it's defunct, essentially. We got too big. I've been part of so many Slack and other communities that have died because they got too big and people left. How do you manage the growth of a community and then retention of the membership? What have you learned there? The way that you scale community is you create sub-communities. There's a playbook for a community. We just have to study it. I realized this when I was talking to this woman who wrote two books on subscription businesses and communities. Her name's Robbie Kelman Baxter. She studied it. So what's the playbook? The playbook is sub-communities while giving stature and recognition to the membership. That is part of how communities can scale and grow. How does Weight Watchers is a community? CrossFit is a community. Scale. Well, there's a local CrossFit gym. You feel like you're part of the big CrossFit thing, but you got your people at your local gym. Robbie told me once that she's still a member of Weight Watchers. Why is that? Even after she's lost all the weight that she wanted to lose, because they make you a member for life. You come back and speak to the current membership about your weight loss journey, and then eventually you become an ambassador. And that becomes a status that you don't want to lose. So at the heart of all of this, you create smaller groups within the big groups, you empower the members, and you give them status and recognition for the work that they do to support you. It's straightforward and obvious, but not enough people do it because so much of us, for me as a founder, sometimes you're worried about losing control or losing control of the brand experience. But now that is what I am totally fixated on. For example, New York has got like a thousand of the 10,000 members because I'm from New York. It's 10% of the total membership and we just relaunched chapters. So yes, I made a bunch of mistakes, but the only sin is continuing to make them after you're aware of them. So we're fixing them. We launched the New York mm -hmm. chapter last month. And it's not just Andrea Kyle, who is a CRO of Help Scout and was CMO of Electric and CMO of Signpost and uh, known CMO. And then Mike Hoffman, who's a founder and a great sales leader. It's not just them as the co-chapter heads. They've got a team of 10 people that are helping them. And there's two people that run the CRO group of New York. And there's two people, including Alina Vandenberg, who is the CEO of Chili Piper. She runs the CMO group of New York. And there's a fractional consulting group of New York. And so all of these have their own meetups, their own local get-togethers. That can be a place where she exerts influence and where she and other people that need status recognition or are looking to accelerate their career can do that, which is give status and recognition and let the community self-organize. Do not try to be so top-down. And if you do that, 
you understand that different people are going to have different brand experiences and that's okay. The insight that I had a year and a half ago is that everybody needs to experience the exact same thing was incorrect. It's okay that some chapter heads are going to be great and some are not going to be great. That's a feature, not a bug. It's not just you. It's everybody self-organizing to a certain extent. That's thing number one. And thing number two is just trying to use data as much as possible to understand the member journey that leads to retention. For example, we figured out it's like 90% R squared, but it's some level of confidence, more confidence than we've had. And a crazy thing is I'm non-technical and, and even our technical team was doing other things. The best thing I've done is continue to invest in operations. So for the first time in our history this year, everything flows through Salesforce. Every piece of data, we have all these disparate third-party services. We have Zoom, we have our Doshable, our learning management system where you take classes, all of Slack. And because we use Bizabo or some kind of event registration system, we know who goes to events. Everything feeds into Salesforce so we can run algorithmic you know, computations to figure out what are the behaviors that lead to renewal. For us, it's one to two in-person dinners a year, two courses a year, and then Slack engagement. If you do those three things, you're very likely to renew. People don't need to go to five dinners a year. They need to go to one if it's a 12-month membership in the second half of their membership. So the first part of their membership should be focused on learning. The second part of their membership should, over the course of a year should be focused on an in-person event experience. And if you do those things, uh, you know, much higher chance of renewal. What Sam said here is brilliant. Too many companies think that they can set up a Slack group and voila, you have a community now. Most of them become ghost towns or act like Quora, occasional questions and answers. Few build actual relationships. It's hard and requires strong focus, just like everything else. You have uh, said that you don't need to build more products and services until you're at 20 million in revenue that need to stay focused on your core customer. So is that the kind of thinking you're applying here? I think it's figure out what you're good at, what you're supposed to be doing. Again, I'm not going to build a finance community. Operators Guild can do that. I'm not going to do live training for account executives. Sales Impact Academy is going to do that, et cetera. I'm going to focus on what I'm good at. And I'm not going to try and be all things to all people. All too many companies have an unclear and unproductive positioning because they lack the discipline to say no to attractive looking revenues that actually don't fit. If you go after the dollars in a market that's not your core focus, in the end, you will lose to highly focused competitors. Ask me how I know. All these people who say you need to focus are right. The market segment you no longer think is big enough to focus on a new startup will make a killing off of. You gotta focus. When you look back at business lessons learned, what advice would you give to other B2B founders? It's the inversion of the lessons that I just articulated. The more things you try to do, the more competitors you have. If you're Gong or Outreach and you're past 200 million in revenue, fine. You can have lots of competitors. But when you're small, the more competitors, the more distraction. Be known as doing one thing really well. Number two is focus on your customer, put your customer at the center of as many conversations as possible. Understand that nothing matters if they don't renew and they feel it when you're trying to grow. The growth should be the natural output. It should be the accelerant of happy customers as opposed to the artificial insertion of capital. Every day that I spend talking to my customers, working with my customers and trying to be really focused on what I'm doing the better that I'm doing. The last thing I'll say relates to focus. Too many European companies want to enter the US too early. People are thinking about new product lines, new go-to-market motions, new things. They're moving up market. We need to move up market into the enterprise. 
make sure that you really feel confident that you're saturated in your existing go-to-market motion with your existing customer in your existing thing. Markets tend to be bigger than we think. And people assume that they're smaller because they're hard. My biggest piece of advice is don't go to a new geography. Don't try to do five different things. Try to do one thing really, really well. So how did Pavilion win? One, they built on top of a growing platform. This is fundamentally a business built on LinkedIn. We are a skim, a subset of the overall LinkedIn community in the sense that all of our marketing happens on LinkedIn. All of it was organic. We never paid for anything. Two, they focused heavily on community building and did it smart. At the heart of all of this, you create smaller groups within the big groups, you empower the members and you give them status and recognition for the work that they do to support you. Three, they reduced and refocused. I tried to build my own software for a long time and then finally just capitulated saying, I'm not going to build a better Slack than Slack. I'm not going to build a better community management platform. Why don't I borrow their team of 100 engineers instead of my team of eight engineers and I can focus on what I'm good at. And that's how you win. I'm Pepe Lam. For more tips on how to win, follow me on LinkedIn or Twitter. Thanks for listening.